Listener Production. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. And it was designed to shock me, and he looked me dead in the eye, and I thought at that time, that's what evil looks like. Former Detective Inspector Ricky Hennessy is renowned for his ability to gather evidence and build cases against some of the state's most dangerous criminals and bring closure to families and victims by getting these criminals to confess their crimes. Here as we delve into the mind of a master interrogator and explore the world of criminal confessions, including Australia's most wanted fugitive at the time of 2012, Malcolm Naden. We'll explore Hennessy's journey as a detective and explore the challenges he faced during the hunt for Naden, as well as his insights into what it takes to catch a criminal on the run. Welcome, Ricky. Thanks for coming along. Thanks for having me. Ricky, recently resigned as opposed to retired. How do you phrase that? I think the only difference is age, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. In fact, we were chatting earlier, Ricky, is this is just the transition from 23 years in the job into resigning and stepping away last week, two weeks ago. That's right, yeah. I want to um, explore my options in the private industry. Yes. Uh, quite happy with the career that I achieved in the police. So I thought it was time to move on and see what else I can do. Good for you. Maybe lower the golf handicap perhaps a touch or work in the garden. No, that'll or... take a lot more work. <laughs> Ricky, it's not an exaggeration to say that you've, you've worked on some of the biggest and highest profile criminal cases in New South Wales in the past couple of decades. When I mentioned in the intro the, uh, the Malcolm Naden case, now Malcolm Naden would be a name I think familiar with many folks listening in. Convicted of the murders of two young women, uh, seven years on the run, one of the biggest manhunts in New South Wales history and was uh, labelled as Australia's most wanted fugitive in 2012. You led that case, that investigation, that manhunt. Ricky, um, what can you tell us about that? It's definitely one of the biggest challenges of my career. Uh, when I took over that investigation, Nate had already been on the run for... Uh, close to seven years, and I was left in a position where I was like, well, where do I start? I've got to take up where others have left off. Uh, a lot had happened. I had become familiar with the offending that led to the manhunt, but also become familiar with the type of character that Naden was and what the police had been able to learn about him in their efforts to find him up until that point. Was it a cold case? Is that how you describe it, Ricky, when you picked it up? Not in the classic sense of uh, uh, cold cases where the matter's been unsolved for some period of time and then the new detective picks it up and starts afresh. The case had gone cold in the sense that the trail, mm. Malcolm's trail, had gone cold for some time. The briefs of evidence against Naden for the two homicides 
he was alleged to have committed were fairly strong. So it wasn't the sense of trying to uh, prove or, or find further evidence in relation to the acts themselves. It was more about actually finding Malcolm. Unique for a uh, an offender to to under the radar for seven years. He went bush basically, completely, completely yes. bush for seven years. I read recently, Ricky, his greatest fear. One of the things that he feared most was dying of hunger. That's what kept him going was the the need to just survive, which was a point I found very interesting when we delved into that a bit more. Um, I got the sense that Malcolm deliberately took on that way of life to distract himself, to stop himself from being tempted to reoffend. That's interesting. So he, 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 he sort of almost extricated himself from society to live the life of a, a loner in the bush, just barely surviving. To That's perhaps right. in some ways resist those urges that, uh, that he'd carried out earlier. That's right. He'd break in somewhere and, and gorge on food, I, I read. He would just eat and eat and eat and eat, almost to the point of being sick, and then wouldn't eat for days afterwards. Yeah, he, he actually, when he was on the run to begin with, he was far more disciplined to the point that most people wouldn't know that he had broken into their remote properties at all, um, or it would take some time them to realize that something was amiss. It was very easy for people to learn the land that he was on or homes or huts, as they were called. Mm. He would be able to get access to those structures, take small amounts of food at a time, just enough to survive. And that's how he was able to go undetected for so long to begin with. But for whatever reason, as time went by, he became less and less disciplined. Mm. And in doing so, he would then end up, as you say, going into a place and basically just gorging himself, emptying it. And then um, if it was a good score, so to speak, he'd go away and sit off the place a bit and wait for Yana to come back and restock and then go down and hit it again. So that um, MO, once we realised it, was key to catching him. And you had, and you were right at the the sharp end of this, Ricky, you had a a fairly close encounter with him prior, I think, to his eventual arrest where, correct me if I'm wrong, he was lining up police to see who he was going to shoot. He was going to shoot a police officer. We're going to kill a police officer because you were getting too close. And he did, in fact, I think, shoot one of your colleagues. And, and thankfully it wasn't fatal, more through good luck than, than anything else. Yeah, that's right, unfortunately. Um, that officer was a friend of mine. He's actually my class in, in the academy. Uh, we'd spent the days before that catching up. Um, so it was quite hard uh, when the, to take when he was shot by Malcolm. Mm. Um, Malcolm later told me the story. The operation kicked off um, and over the course of a few days of deployment to the tactical police, my friend and I were catching up. So it was quite a shock um, when early one morning um, he and his other tactical colleagues were able to finally locate his campsite. Uh, unfortunately, what they didn't know at the time is that Malcolm had become aware of their presence late the day before, and when he heard people approaching the campsite, he assumed that they were there to look for him. So he took the opportunity to um, basically lay in wait with his twenty-two caliber rifle, and uh, he told me later on that when he saw the police approaching, he took time and considered who he was actually going to shoot. 
uh, he saw one fellow as a dog handler and he was quite troubled by the fact that one of the police had a dog and his dog was probably going to get him. Mm. Uh, but then he saw uh, the other officer who he ended up shooting um, and decided to, to shoot him and he aimed for the chest and thankfully that officer turned at the exact moment that Malcolm fired and avoided being shot fatally. So, Ricky, the eventual capture of Naden, which occurred... Uh, not long after his, I don't think it's an age exaggeration, so it's his, his attempted murder of one of your colleagues. That's exactly what it was. The eventual capture of Naden, can you walk us through that? It was late at night, close to midnight. Set the scene for that. So the plan, as I said, was built around this idea that we would eventually get Malcolm going back to a property that he'd previously broken into. So we were aware that he'd broken into a property down in, um, Mopity, and we put things in place there so that if he did return, then we would hopefully be alerted to the fact that he'd broken back in. I think it was about eight o'clock the night before he was arrested that we got alerted to the fact that Malcolm or someone had uh, entered this property, and that kicked off the tactical operation. So the tactical police, who had quite a bit of experience by that point, informing up around these remote properties and setting perimeters and then entering and clearing the structures, they executed the plan perfectly on the night. When they arrived, they saw that there was activity inside the structure. Someone had started a fire, it looked like they might have been cooking or, or doing things, and based on the, that time of night and knowing that the owner wasn't there, we were pretty confident just prior to his apprehension that we had our man. Mm. When the tactical police finally did apprehend him, he immediately identified himself as Malcolm Naden and he's famously remembered for saying to the tactical police, thank God it's over. It's a really interesting comment, uh, Ricky, and, and one that is is not altogether unusual when offenders are on the run or offenders are committing ongoing offences. They often articulate how at the end of it, it's it's almost a relief, it's over, it's finished, there's no more running. Um because for seven years, he would have been looking over his shoulder, I guess, and having that close encounter with you and your colleagues a day or two before. I can understand that comment on his part, that relief, if you like. It's over, it's done. When you spoke to him back at, I think, Taree at the local command there, was that a one-on-one discussion that you had with him? Because this is a guy who's been bush for seven years. What was he like? What were those interactions like? My first interaction with Malcolm was actually at the scene where he was arrested with my offside and my second in charge, Paul Mangan. And I was struck immediately by how normal he seemed to me. Uh, we'd received advice that because he'd been on the run for so long and may have had absolutely no human interaction for the period that he was on the run, that he could be in any kind of state, including incapable of speaking, not willing to speak, suffering from different forms of mental illness and we were prepared for a scenario where we we're going to end up catching Malcolm but not being able to get anything from him at all about the murder offences, how he lived on the run, how he'd survived the attempted murder of the police officer. So on that night, yes, there was a sense of relief and definitely satisfaction at having finally caught him but my mind was immediately then concerned with, okay, what now? 
I've now got to speak to this man, work him out, and try and get from him the admissions I need to prove the offences at court. Now, as that aspect of the investigation continued, my understanding, Ricky, is that Naden created quite a bond between, in his mind perhaps, between yourself and your colleague Paul to the point where, am I right in saying you were the only two officers that he would in fact allow to interview or talk to after that event? He made it clear after speaking to him at Tari Police Station that if the police wanted to continue to speak to him about the offences, then it was definitely his preference that he speak to Paul and I. Mm-hmm. And I put that down to our treatment of him whilst he was in custody. Um, despite the fact that he had shot a police officer and was accused of all manner of heinous crimes, he was struck by how well he was treated and... Paul and I treated him as decently as we could like any other. Now, Ricky, that's a really interesting point I want to pick up on there. You know, working in these environments as you did for over two decades, you meet with people that have done horrendous things. And in this case, we can even go a step further. And this is an individual who attempted to kill not only a colleague of yours, a friend of yours, a guy you went through the police academy with. It's interesting, I'm sure it's interesting to the listeners to hear that even allowing for all that, you were able to humanise him, you were able to connect with him and and almost put aside some of the monstrous things that he had done and connect perhaps more to him as a as a human, as a bloke. Is that getting too sort of touchy-feely, Ricky, or is that sort of the process? No, I don't think that's too touchy-feely at all. I think it's quite accurate. The, I, I think personally I do that with most people. I, in order to relate to someone, to understand their motives and relate to them better, you need to put aside what it is you think they've done or, or you know, judgments, preconceived ideas. So um, in dealing with Malcolm, it wasn't what he was accused of or ultimately, you know, um, what he should suffer or be punished for or anything like that. It was, who is this guy? Um, what makes him tick? Mm. And you know, as I've said in teaching other detectives, if you treat a pedophile like a pedophile, they're going to behave like one to you. And, you know, uh, likewise, in Malcolm's case, if you treat him like a cold-blooded murderer, that's all you're going to get. And your job, of course, is at that point to extract from him as much evidence as you can to prove these, at that point, still unsolved crimes of those two homicides. Yeah. And that's going to require, amongst other evidence that may have been gathered at the time, that's that's going to be very much... Um, What's required is is almost an admission, a confession from him. And you, as you say, you're not going to get that by rubbing him up the wrong way. Yeah, you know, unlike the TV shows where they come in and slam the door and prop the chair under the door handle and <laughs> uh, and rip in. Yeah, I've always found in my time, Ricky, in the job, the guys that were the best in that role are guys that very much have the demeanour that you have, which is very calm, very very measured. And I think the chap on the other side of the desk then mirrors that from you, doesn't he? If you're yelling and screaming and riled up, well, that's what you're going to get back. If you're calm and you're measured and respectful, these guys are often quite respectful of police in those roles of interviewing them, aren't they? They often are. And I put that down to, again, the way they're treated. If they're treated well, most, most people, not all, uh, we'll return that in kind, even in the environment they're in, where they know they're they're being interviewed. He was down at Supermax, Goulburn. 
Is that correct? Yeah, he was initially uh, obviously housed up at Tari not long after his arrest for a brief period of time, but he was placed in Supermax shortly thereafter and was there, I think, until just after his conviction. These are environments too, aren't they, Ricky? You know, um, going into any prison, I've found that a challenging feeling, going into a prison environment. Um, I mean, you know that you're going in, you may be there to talk to someone, you may be taking an offender in and then you turn around and you walk out. But there is something quite, I don't know, quite confronting about even being a police officer going into that environment. Would you agree with that? Oh, totally. I uh, <laughs> I think it's the least conducive mm. place for interviewing. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and Supermax is even worse. It's as the corrective services staff call it, the prison within a prison. The corrective services staff were being screened with us as we were going in. So, I mean, that was the intensity of, of that environment, terribly sterile. And here we are trying to talk to Malcolm and you know, maintain that rapport, all the while he's virtually seated in a cage. Is there an element of it when you're talking to a guy who's locked up probably 23 and a half hours a day in, in, in solitary pretty much, I'd imagine, were the conditions? Could you argue on the flip side of that, Ricky, that the fact that you're in there interacting with them and talking with them, that that, that breaks that monotony and, and there's some leverage there for you in that environment? I definitely agree with that proposition, in general, in Naden's case, he was a loner. So um, human interaction was not something that he craved. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. He's probably more comfortable in that solitary environment than he would have been in a um, in an open prison of uh, Goldman alongside Supermax there. Yeah, he did, in fact, comment to Paul and I at one point, I, I think it was sometime after the formal interviews were completed, that he did enjoy the prison environment because he was looked after, he was isolated, had access to books, and so he didn't have to survive from day to day. Well fed. <laughs> well fed, I imagine. Um, although he did joke that at the first opportunity to get out, he would and that we would never catch him again. Mm. Do you go into an interview with somebody like Naden with a plan or once you've got the experience that you had... Do you go in with a fairly open, I'm just going to go in there, I'm just going to see how it flows? What, what, what's your approach to that? Initially, in the case of Nate, initially um, I just kept a very open mind because there were so many variables. Having interview plans I think would have been redundant personally. Uh, another investigator would have approached it in a completely different way. Um, but I just wanted to get a sense for Malcolm and not be having my head caught up in interview plans and having a real rigid agenda. I suspected if Malcolm had picked up what our agenda was, he w would have quickly shut down. So it was more the, the really, although we had a job to do in trying to elicit emissions from him immediately, because that's our job, ultimately my plan with Naden was just to try and get to know him, build that rapport, and see where it went from there. So when you're in the earlier stages of those discussions, and these discussions, these interviews, for want of a better word, they're, they're more like discussions really than interviews in some regards, but these can go on for hours and hours. And are you saying, Ricky, in this case, and what you found worked best for you with this particular offender was just more conversational. So a lot of the chat that you would have been having with him in these interview environments would have had very little to do with the two homicides that he was, or two homicides and an attempted homicide he was eventually charged with. 
but more just getting them to communicate, getting them to trust you and, and then just slowly moving forward from there. Would that be a fair sort of a assessment? Yeah, it is to the point where I, I made the decision on the night that Malcolm was arrested to not press and try and interview him in relation to the homicide matters at all mm. and, and leave that for another day. And just on that, at what point do you push that button? You know, when you're there and you've built up that rapport and you're driving home or the time where you're driving back down there and you're going, okay, at what point do you wait for him to come forward with a confession? Do you try to elicit it, for want of a better term? How do you work around that and what's your timing there? Well, we were under a lot of pressure at the time to complete the prosecution. The police had spent a lot of time and a lot of money yeah. on catching this guy. And there was certainly pressure on me personally to make sure that the conviction was obtained. So I didn't feel like I had an infinite period of time. Mm. I was very wary of the fact that what I was doing is being scrutinized mm. by my superiors. So I really had to ask them to trust me and give me the time as much time as I needed to develop that rapport and hopefully have Malcolm finally tell us what he had done. And it's probably important to note at this point, I had a very personal motivation here in trying to locate the remains of Letitia Nolan. Letitia was Malcolm's first victim. And I still remember to this day reading in a magazine an article that was uh, written either on or behalf of her father, McPete. And he was very critical of the police in that article. And he didn't think enough had been done to find his daughter. And I remember thinking when I read that magazine, I'd only just taken over the, the investigation at that point, thinking I'm going to find that girl um, for the family. And so I knew without Malcolm's assistance, it was highly likely we would never find her. She had been missing by that stage for seven years. And I thought without Malcolm's assistance, her remains are probably never going to be located. So it wasn't just trying to secure a conviction for me. It was, I wanted to find Letitia. So, you know, it's, um, this, is, this is, I think, a wonderful insight, Ricky, into the, the pressure that is on an individual like yourself going in, pressure to get the confession, pressure from the hierarchy, pressure from the DPP to try and get it into the system pressure from the families of these victims and you you know you're you're a slave to so many masters when you're sitting in that room did he finally confess he did completely thankfully talk us through that moment that must have been a that must have been a moment you'll never forget yeah i can picture it now actually um we were paul and i were down with malcolm at supermax and we walked in and he handed us a letter and that letter was some 25 pages, I think, from memory, outlining how he had killed Letitia Nolan and Christy Scholes in graphic detail. And again, as you said, it, I didn't want to get caught up in what he, what he had done and um, needed to get the job done. Those letters were very confronting. And I have no doubt they were intended to be as confronting as possible. But still, from that point on, it was, how do I use this? And also, how do I get this in evidence? 
goodness me, you know, you walk in there and you, he hands you a 25-page letter with all those those confessions. It's, um, yeah, goodness me. Letitia Nolan, were her remains ever, ever recovered? They were, partially. Unfortunately, I think due to extreme mm. weather events and time, uh, all of her remains won't be located. That's all it was. Always something that was um, a challenge for me. But uh, we had to disappoint with Letitia repeatedly. Malcolm told us precisely where he buried the remains of Letitia. And we ended up taking him up to the site to try and more specifically determine where he buried her. By that time, you're talking difference between 2005 and 2012, so it was seven years. The terrain had changed a lot to the point where when he got there, he was struggling to get his bearings. And the local police uh, had told me, and we looked at uh, Google images and other things, satellite images, we could tell the terrain had actually changed significantly. And another problem was that when Malcolm did bury Letitia, he did so in the height of a drought. Severe drought. And so the banks of the Macquarie River were, um, how do I put this? The Macquarie River was a lot smaller then. So by the time we got there to try and recover the Letitia's remains, the river was back up to capacity. Right. So when we did dig, it was difficult to determine if we were digging in exactly the right position. And also if we were digging far enough. And on the first try in 2012, we located no remains whatsoever. And that was very frustrating. And it led some to doubt Malcolm's confession. It, I have to admit, led me to doubt the confession, even though by that stage he had been so honest and forthright with me, I tended to accept it. And it wasn't until, I think it was 2017, that after some severe rain, uh, someone walking along the banks of the Macquarie River discovered partial human remains. And I was immediately alerted by the local police that the remains had been found down at Butler's Falls. Uh, They suspected it could have been Letitia. And I went straight up there and we started to dig again. And we were able to locate some of Letitia's remains, which didn't feel like the complete job, obviously, um, but meant a lot to me, and I know it meant a lot to the family members of Letitia. Brought some, brought some closure to that to that family. Yeah. As we bring this into a little bit of a landing here, it's interesting the language that I'm hearing you using around Naden, but it, it's it's extremely insightful, um, honest, forthright. There's almost. Would it be fair to say when you're investigating a crime at that level and you have the abilities you clearly do to separate the individual from the crimes they commit, when an individual such as Naden eventually does hand you that confession, you respect the fact that the man has admitted what he has done. You can't change what he's done. Is respect too strong a term? If it's too strong, it's probably not the term I'd use. Um, I, I definitely can appreciate if someone has done the wrong thing that they do, 
I guess in a sense, admit wrongdoing and allow themselves to be subjected to the consequences, the punishment that should follow. I, I certainly agree with that. Naden, you said earlier, took himself out of society in a, in a what appears to be perhaps an attempt to quell the, the, the desires that led to the crimes that he committed. We often hear, don't we, uh, Ricky, you know, people, are they, are they born bad? Are they bad individuals? Um, what makes somebody do something that what he has done? Good people can do bad things. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Is Naden a bad person? Is he a person who's done bad things? Are there mental health issues there? How would you assess him? This is something that has fascinated me and probably what kept me in homicide for as long as I did or why people commit murder or why they, they do what they do. Uh, and I've read a lot about it. I'm certainly no academic, but born bad, made bad. What's the difference? How does it happen? I find it fascinating. Um, in Malcolm's case, I think it was a combination of his environment and mental health factors. Um, I don't think he was born bad, but certainly I, I recall there was one period of time where he turned and looked at me on the banks of the Macquarie River when we were looking at Letitia, looking for Letitia. And it was quite deliberate. He, he said something which I can't say for legal reasons to me. And it was designed to shock me. And he looked me dead in the eye. And I thought at that time, that's what it even yeah. looks like. That veneer had dropped away. Yep. And I'll never forget that. It always makes me think, you know, when if people believe in good and evil or whatever beliefs you might have, I just remember thinking at one point, that's why people probably think when they see people with that look in their eye, that's probably why they think there is evil in the world. But aside from that moment, Malcolm to me was, as I said, normal. He was quiet, he was articulate, well-spoken, considerate, joke. If you'd met him on the street, you, wouldn't, you would not suspect him of the murders he committed. That's such an interesting observation, Ricky. And I was talking recently, I met a chap, a detective who worked on the Ivan Malak case. And he said something to me, and it really resonated, and I think it might resonate with you, Ricky, I'm not sure. He said, when you walk into the interview room to meet someone for the first time who's done all these terrible things, he said, you, even as a seasoned police officer, you create almost in your mind a desire or an expectation that when you walk in there, you're going to be faced with almost the devil incarnate, you know, the bloke's going to have a tail and horns and... yeah. And he said, I opened the door to walk in to speak to Ivan Malat, and there was this puny little quietly spoken bloke, nervous on the other side of the desk, very polite, standing up, shaking hands. And, and he said, it's, you almost want them to be the depiction that they are in the movies and on TV because so often, and, and I can just speak you know, briefly in my experience, so often when you meet these individuals who have undoubtedly done terrible things, Oftentimes they don't stack up to society or even our own expectation of what they're going to be like. I couldn't agree more. I've, I've considered something similar many times in my career with some of the people that I've had to interview. Mm. You talk about um, evil folks. Yeah, Ivan Malat, you worked on the case with his nephew, Matthew Malat, who was convicted of the uh, homicide of a friend of his, in fact, in Belangla State Forest, where his uncle so infamously took the lives and, and, and buried all those other folks. You worked on the Matthew Malat case. Um, I think, if I'm right, that you 
interviewed one of the co-accused. That's right, Cohen Klein. Tell us a little bit about that. Cohen Klein is a mystery to me in that I just cannot understand how an 18 or it might have been 19-year-old would seemingly happily go along with the plan that you're going to set up someone that you know and been around town, they live in the same town of Bargo together, uh, how you'd happily go along with a plan to set him up to execute him and video record it. I just, <laughs> still to this day, don't, I can't get my head wrapped around it. You'd look at somebody like Millette Matthew, who I think evidence has shown he did take the life of that friend he, he, in, in, a, in a, a terrible way, basically decapitated him, I think, with an axe or something such as that, pretty gruesome. You can look at that action as being the actions of, of, of somebody who's just, we talk about being bad. I mean, that's, that's out there. But interestingly, you say you can categorise that, but it's the co-accused, it's the enablers, if you like. Where do they fit into that whole thing? Are they, are they taken in somehow by the, the psychopath, if you will? I don't know. What, what's the connection? Yeah, I, I've thought about it a lot, and unfortunately, I don't have a lot of insight to add in, in this case. It's it's just something that has absolutely confounded me. Um, Matthew Malat, as you say, I think from memory, the psychiatrists who examined him did say that he had psychopathic traits. Um, I have no doubt of that myself, uh, knowing other things about his history. But Cohen Klein, prior to this event, the, mm. the murder of, of um, their friend or so-called friend. He was a kid who hung around Bargo smoking pot. That was, you know, he was, and may, I, I don't know, maybe that was it. He was nobody in the scheme of things. Yeah, became besotted by the Matthew Malatza world. That, and I think you're right, you, neither you or I are a psychiatrist, but, you know, he would on a psychiatrist's couch, I think, tick all the boxes of a classic psychopath. You know, no remorse, no, you know, no nothing. You walk into an interview with someone like that, you know, as you said before, Ricky, even working at the sharp end as you have homicide, you don't meet too many people who are bad to the bone. No, they are rare. But if you walk into an interview with a malat, is that someone who you're thinking, you know, they've got ice running through their veins. They're, they're wired up differently, some of these individuals. Well, I, I believe there is, from what I've read, uh, you know, genetic connection something like 5% of the population are born psychopaths, but not all of them go out on their days to murder. Um, the Malat family name obviously has an effect. Yeah. And during that investigation, I was struck by the effect that the Malat name has on the people of the Southern Highlands. And it was interesting that uh, Matthew actually changed his name from Matthew Muleman to Matthew Malat. Okay. When he was a teenager. Because he wanted. He wanted that connection. So Klein was quite instrumental in getting the conviction, or did Malat himself actually openly admit what he has done, no remorse, almost proud of his actions? Malat and Klein initially both denied any involvement in the murder. Even when I interviewed Cohen Klein the night after the murder had been committed, he was still maintaining that he had no idea that Malat was going to go and kill their friend. Mm. And he basically just tried to 
talk himself out of it. When you have two co-accused like that, and, and oftentimes you have one who very much is the is the leader, is the instigator, the other is more enabler, a, a bit of a follower. Is it fair to say, Ricky, that it gives you additional leverage in an investigation where you have two people who you can interview separately and and you would get perhaps more leverage in an interview with a Klein than you would with a Malat? Would that be a fair comment, that it, it, it provides the investigators with a little bit more leverage because you have two offenders that you can work with, working one off another if need be? It can work to your advantage, absolutely. Um, just by virtue of the fact that the more information you have, the, the more you can try and elicit. So it, it was definitely beneficial to have not just Malat and Klein to interview, but the fellow that they took with them. So yeah, we had obviously had the benefit of all that information to put to Klein. Um, Malat actually declined to be formally interviewed. Uh, but he would later write letters, poems, I think from memory, where he um, basically glorified the, his actions and, as you say, demonstrated absolutely no remorse. And those letters were tendered in evidence at court, not just to prove his guilt, but also during his sentencing. The good cop, bad cop analogy that we see on, you know, NYPD Blue and all the TV shows, you'd be a good cop. Ricky, there's no two ways around that. Have you ever have you ever used a a rough old bad cop to come in and shake things up? And then and then is, <laughs> does it work, or is it a is that a is that a TV analogy? Is it a Hollywood sort of a? What are your thoughts? Uh, I have seen police use something that would I would say is uh, similar in nature. The legislation around interviewing in New South Wales is so stringent. It is so easy to lose evidence when things aren't done the right way that the good cop, bad cop scenario in New South Wales is it's and it I actually find it comical. I think most people when they watch T V shows and that's yes. comical. Yes. Um and any decent, intelligent person you're trying to interview is gonna see it for what it is. Hundred percent. And laugh at you. So it's not something I ever entertained and as you probably rightly deducted, it's just not in me yeah, in, in, no. in any event. Having said that too, you know, um, there would be there'd be situations where say you and I are colleagues and I'll be interviewing an offender and just not getting anywhere with them. You would have been in a situation, I'm sure, where one of your colleagues comes out of an interview and says, mate, I just, I don't know, I just not going can you go in there and have a chat? And, and you could get in there and just through nothing more than just a connection, it can be something that's not even that tangible. You can walk out going, yep, got this, got that. You've been in situations like that on both sides of yes, that type of scenario? Yes, yeah, I have. Um, people just relate to others better. Yeah. I've seen it. You, you see some people walk in a room and straight away their back's up. I can't explain, you know, the the finer points or the intricacies, but it just it happens. On the flip side, I also believe that if someone isn't prepared to tell their story, then there isn't anything anyone can do or say to change that they have to be ready they have to want to tell the story at least for some reason so it may be up to you to find that reason or to eliminate the reasons why they don't want to to make them feel comfortable but you know you watch tv shows like the mentalist and all that sort of stuff i just i don't believe in that i i think if they really don't want to tell you that, yeah they're not going to and there's nothing that we can do as police not that i'm a police officer anymore but there's nothing that the police can do to compel people to answer questions
Have you ever been in an interview situation with an individual who's giving a whole lot of information to you and everything's going along really well and you're recording it and you're thinking, goodness, you know, we're making some real progress here. And then it suddenly dawns on you that this person is just a pathological, they're lying and there's absolutely no truth. I, I mentioned this only, this came up recently in a chat I was having. I, I remember, Ricky, a thousand years ago when I was in the job, and I can't even remember the detail around it, but it was a 14-year-old boy hmm. that wrapped me around his little finger. Yeah, right. And this was back, you know, I was in the police back in the 80s, 90s, and it was a little bit looser around interviewing juveniles and things such as that. And this young bloke walked into the police station and I was a young copper, but not green behind the ears. And myself and my colleague were interviewing this young guy, and he was talking in detail about a crime, about an event, and it tied us up for most of the morning. And we had him in a patrol car driving to an alleged crime scene. I was driving, he was in the back. I'll never forget it. I don't even remember the detail of it, but he started literally hysterically cracking up laughing in the back of the patrol car. And it was the weirdest reaction. And, and my colleague in the back said, like, what's all this about? And he just, in between his laughter, says, I just made the whole thing up. I just walked into the police station for a laugh. Now, before or since, I'd never been in a situation where I had been put in something like that. And this was a 14-year-old boy, pathological liar, had the ability to pull the wool over the eyes of two police officers. Now, there was no harm done in that mm. particular incident. But you just wonder where that individual ends up. And have you ever had one of those cross your path? A couple of instances do come to mind. One investigation I was in charge of uh, was a t- murder. This is the task force Nerium? Is that that Yes, case? it is. Yes. 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 So I remember vividly an instance where I was speaking to that girl's mother and I deliberately asked a question that I knew the answer to just to see what she would say and if I could tell if she was going to lie and what she would look like when she lied. Mm. And she lied. I knew the answer. She lied. And I remember looking at her and thinking, there is no way in the world I would have told, I didn't know the answer, that you would just lied to me. You wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. No. And that was a, a lesson I'll always remember and, and did you know, continue to inform me in my career uh, I, I don't believe, I mean, there are tells, but I don't believe you, even as a trained investigator, mm. will always be able to tell if someone's telling you the truth or, or the, lies. The, the safety net, I guess, and you just identified it for younger detectives is ask a question you know the answer to and then see. Yeah, well, it's a nice position <laughs> to be in when you already know the answer. A lot it's of like, the times. It's, like, it's like those barristers in court, isn't it, mate? They'll, yeah. never, they'll never ask a question yes. they don't already know the answer to. That's but right. As you've said, you know, a, a more junior officer could be taken down a garden path by somebody such as that. And when people are that good at lying, it's a really interesting human trait, I guess, and it's one that you come up against a little bit in the police. But most aren't that good at it. But those that are, interesting. 23 years on the job. Goodness me, it's a long time. I went through the academy in 84, and part of you must feel like it was five minutes ago that you were in there, you know, and... Uh, Always wanted to be in the police? Uh, I grew up watching crime documentaries, particularly the ones where forensic science is used. I was good at science. I loved science when I was at school. And that was probably what led me towards criminal investigation initially. I went to uni with the view to doing something potentially in the biosciences or, or forensic science. But not long after that, 
my perspective really shifted. I, I really became intrigued by criminal behaviour, why they do what they do, what their motives are, why on earth they would decide it was a good idea on that day to kill somebody. It just mystified me. And I ended up leaving uni and joining the police with the view, hopefully one day, to becoming a homicide detective. Okay. That was my ultimate goal. It's quite unusual, actually. Not too many young blokes join the police with that very clear pathway in mind. Yeah, I, I ended up on a murder strike force very early. I was still, I think I was only just confirmed as a constable. Mm, so two years in. Yeah, and I was um, asked to go and help out the detectives on the murder of an old fellow up here at Surrey Hills. And I loved it. It really just confirmed for me that that was what I wanted to do. So I remember, I remember saying, if I ever become a detective sergeant homicide squad, I've made it. Right. And I was able to do that Plus. role yeah, for a number of years uh, with mixed success. Um, but ultimately, I definitely achieved in my career what I set out to do, and I'm very happy about that. So even, Ricky, with a very clear focus, and goodness me, I tell you, I admire you, but you'd be one of the very few blokes I've spoken to that's gone to the job that has a very clear idea of not only where they want to go, but they actually end up there. You know, um, myself, I wanted to be in the police, but didn't really know which sort of direction I was going to, which I was going to go in. So from that young, sort of wet behind the ears, um, sort of probationary constable with a desire to uh, end up working homicide, you must have at times pinched yourself, you know, walking away from the confession from a Malcolm Naden and working on the Malat case. That's uh, not only to set those goals, but to achieve them. Goodness me, that's um, you've achieved a lot in that time in the job. Yeah, I actually think that's only starting to sink in for me now. Um, mm. I'm looking back on what I've achieved in my career. And as I said, I, I'm very grateful for the opportunities I was given and, and happy with the successes that I did have. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't all smooth sailing, but mm. I think maybe it's a generational thing. I was starting to see in the police, um, now a lot of people are joining the police, not with a view to you know having a long-term career goal in the police necessarily. It's just something that they want to do. You know, they do it for three to five years and then they move on to another yeah. career. So yeah. um, people like me may become more rare. I'm not sure, but that's certainly a trend that I observed and other colleagues of mine have observed recently. And I'm sure you would attest that with 23 years' experience, there is no substitute for that experience. And let's hope that we continue to have career coppers like yourself because you know as that young copper coming through, the amount of knowledge and wisdom that you can learn from those who've been in the job 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, you know, you end up working with detectives who've been in the police for long and you've been alive. And these are men and women who just uh, like walking encyclopedias of knowledge. One of the things I would say about my career is I definitely had the benefit of some excellent mentors and I benefited from that a lot. I used to joke, it was an inspector called Christopher Olin who uh, started telling war stories one day in the, I think it was 1978. I turned around and said, Chris, I wasn't even born then. <laughs> and I can't repeat his answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah he walked away after that. Yes. Um, but I've had the benefit of working with men like Andrew Marks and, and Stephen Hunt. Yep. Uh, they're some of the best investigators out there, in my opinion.
This is Brent just jumping in here. Now in the next part of the podcast, we're going to be talking about a particularly difficult case that Ricky worked on. Due to legalities around it and its specific elements, we're unable to identify the people involved. Now I'll stress, this isn't to protect the identity of the perpetrators and their heinous crimes. This is to protect the victim and the sanctity of their life. We were given the option of editing the story out entirely, but we're passionate about keeping it to ensure Ricky's work is understood and the memory of the victim is upheld. As you'll hear, this particular case means a great deal to Ricky, and it touches on some difficult themes. So keep in mind, whilst listening, that alterations have had to be made. But hopefully, Ricky's amazing work can still be appreciated, and we do justice to this incredible story. Twenty-three years. Could you nominate a case that impacted you more than others? Worst cases, I don't know, that's probably the wrong terminology, but is there a case that as you now move into the next chapter of your life, you carry with you for perhaps all the wrong reasons? Yeah, definitely the murder of me. Um, I was one of those investigations that I had the benefit of working with Andrew Marks on. He was the officer in charge and I was his gopher, so to speak. It was one of the first in, or it was the first long-term investigation I had at the Homicide Squad and I mm. worked with Andrew, thankfully. And it was nine months of absolute slog, that investigation. And every day I remember thinking, is this little girl alive? Uh, where is she? This was a little girl who, just a little bit of background we now know I think was murdered by her parents, is that correct? By her mother, yes. By her mother. Yeah over something as trivial as not putting her pyjamas on or something tragic. That's right. And her mother killed her? Yeah, her mother, uh, for want of a better term, bashed her in a bedroom. And then they left her to die over a night and a day. And then tried to dispose of her remains? Yeah, her de facto partner who was just given uh, parole on the last weekend. Um, he put the plan together and went out and prepared a grave in an area that he knew out the back of um, where he grew up, Bidwell or Shelby, somewhere around there. And um, they put her in a suitcase and caught a cab out to the bush, got dropped off and dragged her out there and set the suitcase on fire and buried her. That was your first investigation that you're involved in of that level yeah it was yeah and will be the one that you take with you as one of the worst it's definitely one that had the most impact yeah mm. Mm. i can i can hear the emotion in your voice now and he's out on parole yeah mm. Mm. changes in the job you mentioned that when you went in at your time most were going in with a view to the police as a career. It's, it's, you know, you want to do your time in probation and then, you know, branch out into different areas. There's been a change in attitude perhaps with some of the folks coming in. I've got a 25-year-old daughter, 22-year-old son, and it's, it's probably reflective of society that, you know, we grew up in a time where you, you went to university, you got a degree or whatever it was that you did or you joined the police or you joined whatever, 
and you followed that path. Things are different now. What else has changed in the police? Any changes, better or worse, that you've seen in your time? There's a lot of change right now. Um, sadly, I think the sentiment towards police is really low, and at least that was my perception when I left. Um, I think the media, the public perception, police aren't very well respected, they aren't well regarded, and it's really sad. There are a lot of hardworking police out there who are considered by a lot to be the enemy for no other reason than they are the authorities. The, <laughs> it's just this sentiment that I, um, I found really disappointing towards the end of my career. Yeah. So that's not so much a change within the police itself. It's more a societal change that is directed towards the police. Yeah, but it's it's there are more tangible, or there is more tangible evidence of that in some regard, particularly with recruitment in law enforcement across the world right now. It's at an all-time low. Worldwide, law enforcement. Yeah. Law enforcement cannot recruit and they cannot retain police officers. Is it a step too far to say that that change in attitude from society is a contributing factor to you choosing to step away from the job? It's one of quite a number of factors, but I joined to make a difference. Yeah. But that was, you know, I thought I was, you know, 20 years old, I'm young and naive, I'm going to save the world and make a difference. Um, So when you feel like the public that you're trying to serve really don't care or don't don't like you, Hmm. it's Hmm. it's hard to get out of bed and go to work in the morning so i definitely think that the betrayal of police and the perception of police is affecting the desire for people to want to join the police not just women new south wales yeah the the figures demonstrate that and the flow-on effect there is is i guess we end up missing out on so many good people who choose not to pursue that career for that very reason precisely proudest moment uh, I've got a few, I'm proud to say. <laughs> Give us a couple. Uh, well, obviously the, the capture of Naden. Yeah, that's um, got to be a big one. Yeah. Um, the moment that we, we finding f- on a birthday. Yeah. Big one. This is f- Yeah. You found her remains on her birthday. She would have turned seven. When you, goodness if she'd me. been alive, yeah. Goodness me. Mm. If you could give one tip, and there's probably numerous, to those listening in, you know, the listeners that listen into podcasts of this nature have a genuine interest and I think also a genuine respect for, for police and the work that you do. If you could give one tip, a safety tip, or it might not even be that, but what would be one thing that you would say with all your experience, what you've seen, what would you pass on to, to your son, your daughter, or, or an individual with regards to keeping yourself safe? And is there anything that you can take from everything you've done and articulate it into one one sort of a tip or one piece? Probably of not without sounding exceptionally cynical. <laughs> <laughs> if I had my time again, I think I probably would have believed in myself a bit more, and I would have achieved more. Um, okay. But also, I think you really need to look after yourself. You need to be present like as, as much as you possibly can try and perceive yourself in the moment and just check in and make sure you're all right mm. ricky it's been an absolute pleasure 
mate, to uh, to spend an hour or so with you. And I want to thank you. Thank you for your service. I want to thank you for what you've done, what you've put into it. And I want to wish you genuinely all the very best for this next chapter in your life. And um, it's an interesting time that you find yourself in that flux between leaving the job and, and moving into another environment. And I have absolutely no doubt that you will be as successful in those future endeavours as you have been in the past 23 years. It's been a pleasure to have you here and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. And I hope so. I haven't been unemployed since I was 13 years old. So, <laughs> All the very it's best. Very different. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.